You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We usually think of Japan as an efficient, well-organized society. Except perhaps for August 12, 1990, when evacuation traffic from Typhoon Winona mixed with traffic of people coming back from their summer holiday. Due to their 18th century design, highways around Tokyo can become overloaded as far as 30 or 40 miles outside the city. How bad did this traffic jam get? Try to imagine over 15,000 cars, bumper to bumper, for 84 miles. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The world as we know it would not be the world as we know it without cars. Everyone's got one, it seems, and that can be a problem. Of the billion or so cars in the world, China has 5 million, though its total number of motor vehicles is closer to 18 million. Car ownership comes on much faster than highway building, so authorities have tried to stop residents from buying so many cars in an attempt to ease traffic and reduce pollution but their efforts have been mostly useless. Beijing drivers, for example, must leave their cars at home one day per week based on the last digit of its license plate. So some people just bought a second car. Still, local reports claim that the daily Chinese driver spends two to three hours per day in traffic off the back of the huge number of cars. In August 2010, China became host to the mother of all traffic jams, with a leviathan of cars that stretched between Shangjikou and Beijing, more than 62 miles or 100 kilometers, and lasted 12 days. Since we are talking about China, a nation not known for its information-permeable borders, there aren't clear statistics concerning the number of stranded drivers. But if the average car is 15 feet or 4.5 meters long, and we allow a few feet in between them, that would be 20,000 cars. Big trucks are a main aggravator of the problem, which we'll get into in a minute, so that would drive the estimate down. But even at half, at 10,000 vehicles? That's a hell of a lot of vehicles. Like the video for REM's Everybody Hurts, people just got out of their cars and walked around. Truckers slept under their vehicles. People played cards, the lucky few who happened to have cards with them. Locals saw an opportunity to help, and make a little scratch, selling the stranded motorists food and water. Bottled water that normally cost one yuan would now cost 15, and you pretty much had to pay it. There was also a fair amount of crime, with gas being siphoned, goods being stolen, and even a few stabbings. Hundreds of police were sent into the area, to no avail. It was like Woodstock 99, but with fewer fires. You know how when you're in traffic, you want to know what caused it. You want to see an accident or construction or something once you get moving again. 
Imagine if you'd waited more than a week. So what did cause the traffic jam? A whole lot of things contribute to Chinese traffic overall. Many of China's cities were not designed for cars. They're also not designed to support the massive populations they now boast. Beijing has more than 20 million people. As a result, in many cities, the roads are simply not big enough. Cars are a status symbol. In China, where white-collar workers might otherwise be well-suited by public transportation, buying a car often isn't as much about convenience as it is about showing that you can afford a car. Once they've got the cars, that becomes the default transportation. Car ownership has nearly tripled in a little more than a decade, and it's just not physically possible to build roads that fast to keep up. China's roads are also full of new drivers. Though China didn't break the 2 million vehicle mark until around the year 2000, a decade later it had more than 5 million vehicles. That means that at any time, a significant portion of the people driving on China's roads only have a few years of driving experience. Their driving schools aren't great either, usually teaching exclusively on closed courses, meaning a brand new driver is on their own the first time they pull out onto a real road with other cars. This can lead to mistakes that cause accidents and gridlock. There's also a fair amount of corruption afoot in the driving schools, so many new drivers haven't taken any classes at all. As a result, China has a lot of accidents. Its traffic fatality rate per 100,000 cars is 36, more than double the United States, and several times more than European countries like the UK and Spain, which have rates of less than 10 fatalities per 100,000 cars. With 20 million people living in Beijing alone, even with great driver education, wider roads, and fewer people buying cars, traffic jams are still going to be an issue. As for the 2010 Beijing carpocalypse specifically, the exacerbating factor was coal. China relies on coal for 70% of its energy needs, which comes both from the country of Mongolia and the Chinese region of Inner Mongolia. There are precious few railroads in the region, so the coal goes mostly by truck, along Highway G110. G110 is an important road, but not a big one. It also lacks inspection stations that other highways have, making it the first choice for many of the unlicensed coal mines that are operating. A highway being used that much, especially by big, heavy vehicles, will require repair, which crews dove ahead with on the fifth day of the traffic jam, shutting down half the lanes. Ironically, trucks carrying construction supplies to be used in the repair of the highway in order to ease the traffic got blocked at an exit, jamming it up even worse. What had been a crawl became a dead stop with some cars only moving 0.2 miles or 0.3 kilometers a day. Not 0.2 miles per hour, 0.2 miles in a day. A drive that should have taken an hour took a week. Authorities tried to reroute traffic and encourage people not to drive, but it was like locking the door after the horse was on fire. All that they could do was to let the traffic jam run its course over the following week as well as repair roads, add rail lines, and crack down on illegal mining to make sure it didn't happen again. 
Surprisingly, the Guinness Book of World Records claims that that isn't the longest traffic jam in history by linear measure. An episode in France spanned from Lyon to Paris, a distance of 109 miles or 175 kilometers, in February of 1980. The reason? Rough winter weather and a spike of holiday travelers. A nearly 100-mile jam on I-45 north of Houston, Texas in 2005 at least had a good reason. People fleeing from Hurricane Rita. It was the largest evacuation in United States history, with three million people flooding the freeways, starting on September 21st. 48 hours later, many of them were still there. If you judge a city's traffic by taking all of the small traffic jams together, a special prize goes to Sao Paulo, Brazil, which had more than 182 miles or 292 kilometers of accumulated traffic jams out of the 522 miles, 840 kilometers that were monitored in June 2009. As in China, Brazil is adding cars and commercial vehicles exponentially faster than it can add roads. Let's get out and stretch our legs for a minute and pop on over to Twitter, where we got some great help this week from Pod People, Odd Dad Out Podcast, Richard Enriquez, Lie Hard with a Vengeance, a very funny Fact Among the Lies show, and special credit to Eric Parfait for the most retweets, and big love to Alphabet Flight and Short Stories by Augie Peterson for mentioning us when people ask for podcast recommendations. Word of mouth is still the primary way that people find new shows, so recommending a podcast that you like or sharing something they posted on social media is still the best way to help them. Of course, reviews don't hurt either. And we got not only a review, but a recommendation on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts from Eric Moses, who says, I listen to about 25 different podcasts on a daily basis while at work, and this show is by far in my top three list, as I have listened to almost every episode and will get to all soon, and I eagerly wait each new episode. Little is ever said about hosts in podcast. No matter the quality of content, if the host doesn't have a voice that resonates, it kind of kills the whole show. This host in particular has a calming, intelligent, and informative tone that absolutely makes the show, on top of great content, of course. That said, my family and friends know all too well that I recommend you and wish I'd stop. Well, thank you so much, Eric. And whenever anyone compliments me on my speaking voice, I have to give all the credit to my mom, who was in radio in the 60s and 70s. And her podcast, Rock History with Joe Christie, is going to be coming out soon. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Egypt and Israel had a salty relationship in the mid-20th century. In 1967, war broke out between the two, and Israel captured the Sinai Peninsula. In response, Egypt attempted to cripple the Israeli economy by blockading the Suez Canal with mines, sunken ships, outright trash, trapping 14 unlucky ships in the canal for eight years. Marooned on the canal's Great Bitter Lake, the ships, which were out of Britain, France, America, Germany, Sweden, Bulgaria, Poland, and Czechoslovakia, clustered in the middle of the lake like a wagon train awaiting an Indian attack, said the New York Times. Israel controlled the east bank of the canal, and Egypt controlled the west. The sailors on the ships could only watch helplessly as both sides exchanged gunfire and rockets right over their heads. The first month was like a holiday, said Captain Miroslaw Proskuniki of the Polish ship Jakarta. The second month was very hard. By the end of the third, it was terrible. With nothing to do besides clean the ships and do basic maintenance, the boats puttered around aimlessly in an attempt to keep the engines in good shape. With nowhere to go, the crews eventually set aside their homeland's differences, moored together, and formed an unofficial micronation of sorts, calling themselves the Yellow Fleet, a reference to the windswept sand that piled on their decks. Each ship adopted a special duty to keep their country running smoothly. The Polish freighter was the post office. The British freighter hosted soccer matches. One ship served as the hospital, another as the movie theater. On Sundays, the German ship hosted church services. We call it church, Captain Paul Wall told the LA Times in 1969, but it was more of a beer party. The Germans received beer from breweries back home. Beer was the crew's lifeblood, one of the few things they had to look forward to. In three days, we tried Norwegian beer, Czechoslovak beer and wine, and Bulgarian beer and vodka, Captain Sladislav Sasik told the New York Times in 74. In fact, the stranded men drank so much beer, tossing the bottles into the water, that they liked to joke that the lake was 40 feet deep, but it was really 35 feet of water and 5 feet of beer bottles. As the British captain, Arthur Kensett, said, one wonders what future archaeologists in a thousand years' time will think of this. It was like an adult summer camp, almost, as these folks made the best of their situation. The men and one woman passed their time participating in sailing races and regattas, water skiing on a surfboard pulled by a lifeboat. They played bingo and cricket and held swim meets. It was so hot outside, they regularly cooked steaks atop 35-gallon drums. During the 1968 Tokyo Olympics, they hosted the Bitter Lake Mini Olympics, with competitions in weightlifting, water polo, air rifle shooting, high jumping, and of course swimming. Poland took the gold. During Christmas time, they installed a floating Christmas tree and lowered a piano onto a small boat, which rowed around the lake and serenaded each ship. The Yellow Fleet then dubbed themselves the Great Bitter Lake Association and made special badges. They even had a club tie. 
Fortunately, the crews were not trapped inside the canal for the entire eight years. The people were allowed to go home and replacement crews were brought in. This was needed to keep the ships in order. There was maintenance work to be done on the vessels, cleaning and repairing them, transferring fuel and doing required drills like fire safety. Because of the hot tropical climate, working hours were cut from eight hours to six on weekdays and four hours on Saturday. Sundays were free. That left enough time for reading, playing bridge, and drinking. The crews rotated every three or four months. Over the eight-year period, 3,000 men did duty on stranded Suez ships. For some, the experience in the canal was one of their most memorable. But what was remarkable, British writer Kath Senker told Express, was the strong community these crews forged, even though they came from countries on opposing sides of the Cold War. By the mid-1970s, much of the cargo the vessels had been carrying was no good anymore. The original shipments of wool, rubber, and sheet metal, which had been loaded in places as far away as Australia and Asia, were no longer needed either. But their patience was eventually rewarded. By 1975, approximately 750,000 explosives had been successfully removed from the Suez Canal, making escape possible. The Great Bitter Lake Association disbanded, and the vessels of the Yellow Fleet finally returned to their separate homes. Except only the two German ships were able to leave under their own power. They were received in Hamburg by 30,000 cheering spectators. After years of inactivity and isolation, the rest of the sand-beaten ships had to be scrapped. The American ship was already gone, having been sunk by an Israeli rocket two years earlier. The British wrote off their four ships as an insurance loss, and the Swedish sold their ship to Norway. The camaraderie of the Yellow Fleet makes me think about the camaraderie of my brainiacs, especially those who are in our Patreon and our Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash groups, plural, slash Brainiac Break Room. That's where I post facts that don't go onto the main social media feeds. And of course, at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Sponsors of today's episode, that's where you can get early access to the episodes and bonus episodes, including the new show, Spot the Lie. I am thrilled to say that the Patreon is currently at $60. When it hits $75, 50% of contributions will go to creators who help other creators, like people who make music that podcasters can use for free. So head on over to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts to see which tier is right for you. It was a grim 28 hours for passengers flying from Abu Dhabi to San Francisco, who, in addition to their flight time, had to wait 12 hours on the tarmac in the UAE after fog led to airport congestion. Quick side note, Abu Dhabi was where Garfield was constantly trying to mail the cuter kitten Nermal, which on the cartoon show they depicted as a tropical island, but it is in fact in the Middle East. When they finally landed in America, the passengers told reporters, everybody was fighting. The flight attendants were fighting with us. We were fighting with the flight attendants. The ordeal was not the first time that the passengers had been left in a lurch. In 1999, Northwest Airlines, which merged with Delta in 2008, left travelers stranded in a snowstorm at Detroit Metropolitan 
and were later ordered to pay out $7 million in compensation. Despite a 12-inch dump of snow over the New Year weekend, the airline decided to keep running flights while other operators canceled. It worked in theory, but not in practice. Thousands of passengers were left on the tarmac for up to 10 hours, reportedly without food, water, or toilets on some aircrafts. According to the Chicago Tribune, Northwest's handling of the snowstorm was a significant factor in Congress deciding to make airlines abide by a Passenger Bill of Rights, which was introduced in 2009. Passengers on a JetBlue flight were held on the tarmac at JFK for 11 hours in 2007, when congestion and frozen equipment caused planes to be significantly delayed. Ryanair normally has a good punctuality record, which is about all it has going for it, when passengers faced an 11-hour delay. They sat on the tarmac for three hours and started making phone calls to the police when they claimed they were refused food and water. Ryanair issued a statement to say the delay was caused by strong winds, and passengers had been disembarked and provided with refreshment vouchers. The airline eventually departed 11 hours behind schedule. Occasionally, delays have a silver lining. A family from Hertfordshire was on a Thompson flight from Cancun to Gatwick, which meant to leave Mexico at 4.10 p.m. on New Year's Eve and fly overnight to London. But problems with cabin crew scheduling led to a 22-hour delay, so folks got to spend the night in a beachside hotel. One passenger told a newspaper that they spent the extra day by the swimming pool exploring Cancun and getting some last-minute sun. Broken toilets caused a two-day delay on a United Airlines San Francisco to Shanghai flight in 2012. Flight 857 had to be diverted to the nearest airport, which was Anchorage, Alaska. A replacement plane was brought in, but it was also faulty, meaning the travelers didn't leave until a third Boeing 777 was brought in the following day. If we'd known we'd be here this long, a passenger told the Associated Press, we would have gone out and done some sightseeing. One Ronald Hooser was delayed 27 hours on a Jet 2 flight from Malaga to Manchester in 2011. The airline said that faulty wiring had led to the delay, which was an unforeseen and extraordinary circumstance, and so it was therefore not liable to pay Mr. Hooser any compensation. But a court ruled that this was wear and tear that should have been dealt with before it caused a delay, and was in no way extraordinary. Mr. Hooser's case was upheld, and he was awarded compensation under European Union regulations, through which he had claimed the delay had caused him, quote, no little inconvenience. I suspect the British drafted those regulations. Up to a million British passengers were delayed in 2010 after the eruption of the Icelandic volcano. Okay, I've been practicing. Bear with me now. The volcano Eyjafjallajökull. Thank you, Iceland. For anyone who's curious and want to try to pronounce that themselves, it's spelled E-Y-J-A-F-J-A-L-L-A-J-O with umlauts K-U-L-L. Anyway, up to a million British passengers were delayed because of the volcano. This led to mass movements of travelers over land, with buses, rental cars, and train services completely booked out all across the continent. 
Eurocontrol, the European Organization for Air Navigation Safety, estimated that 104,000 flights were cancelled between April 15th and 22nd of that year. The most famous person stuck in those delays was not a person at all, but a copy of the Magna Carta, which had been in New York for a special event, but had to stay in Europe because of the eruption of Eiffel de Jukuk. That's almost as fun as the Welsh town of a little village whose name at 58 letters is the longest place name of any English-speaking country. And once you can master a word like that, you drop it into conversation at every given opportunity. In 1982, an incident that sounds like an urban legend but actually happened, the famous patio chair balloon flight. A California man named Larry Walters strapped enough balloons to a lawn chair to achieve an altitude of 15,000 feet, which floated into the controlled airspace over Los Angeles International Airport, causing massive disruptions to flight service. A plane from Stockholm to Frankfurt was delayed by nearly three hours because of a smelly carpet. A strong odor was detected on board the Lufthansa aircraft, but maintenance staff concluded the smell was just off-gassing from the newly installed carpet. New car, good smell. New plane, not as much. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But I'll leave you with another massive traffic jam, this one in April of 1990, when an estimated 18 million vehicles knotted up at the border between East and West Germany. To put that number in perspective, those roads usually only saw 50,000 vehicles. Likely a pain in the butt for any of the 18 million drivers at the time, the traffic jam had a very good reason behind it, the reunification of Germany. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.